We're in chapter 3, beginning with verse 22, and then end up, we will finish chapter 3 today. Um, I think this reminder uh, would be not only beneficial, very helpful for today's understanding and digging into today's text today. There are three significant ways the word must is used in Gospel of John, chapter 3. Warren Wiersbe, in his Bible uh, exposition commentary, it's a very unique, it's a B series. Um, on this chapter, he makes this brilliant observation. And there are three musts in this chapter. Should we call it divine musts? The first one is the must of the sinner. John 3, 7, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, who was a congressman of the day and religious leader and teacher, renowned teacher. He said, you must be born again. Religiosity and your status and your position is not enough. You must be born again, born from above. The second must is the must of the Savior in John 3, 14. And Jesus uh, alluding to the Old Testament passage and says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of, son of man be lifted up. Obvious implication is on the cross, so that who, those who, all who those look to Christ on the cross and place their trust in Christ would be saved, would be healed as in the serpent um, when lifted up by Moses and that anyone who had faith to look to the serpent and they're healed from the, the bite from the uh, the serpent in the wilderness um, and there's third uh, must is today's passage the must of the servant uh, John 3, verse 30. These are the words of John the Baptist and actually the central passage and text of today's uh, message. He must increase, referring to Jesus, but I must decrease. Over the years, I have this mindset of all oh, that's a very noble thing to say. He must increase, but I must decrease. But oftentimes, I think our obedience and faithfulness to the scripture begins with careful, intentional, focused observation. We need to Pay attention to what it says rather than what we want to read into. And we will, we will hear all kinds of different messages. And from time to time, you hear people doing that all the time. And we have done it all the time as well. And for example, when you, when you want to accomplish a very um, audacious goal, goal in your life, whether for your business or whether you're running a marathon, and oftentimes we will quote Philippians 4.13. I can do anything, everything through him who strengthens me. That's, that's out of context. It, it's not, okay, I, I want to accomplish, a, I want to be Olympian. And because of that, I want to believe in this. And no, actually, the, contextually, it points us 
So adaptability to any kind of circumstances, even in suffering and pain, not necessarily reaching, reaching the goal. In the same way, when we read this, because it sounds really nice, and we want to have it, and as a matter of fact, I would call this life motto, motto of John the Baptist. It, this ought to be our motto, motto as well. So let's look at the central message first. And I'm, I want to approach today's sermon in a very different way, rather than building up to the strong point. I want to start with the Big Bang. No uh, smokes and no side effects at all, and just a straight central message. Let's read in the context first. John 3, beginning with verse 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's, John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and, he's, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has, been, he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal To this, that God is true. For, who, for he whom has sent others the words of God, for he give it, gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Context first. As you have seen in this text, heard the reading, um, John the Baptist's ministry was popular. It used to have a huge following up until this time. But ever since Jesus showed up with increasing popularity, his ministry began to dwindle. To a point, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, got upset. You could hear the tone of envy and resentment and anger, something terribly wrong. And it goes like this. Um, Rabbi, some of your disciples, key, core people, went over to follow Jesus.
Andrew and John, the first disciples, came from, Jesus' disciples came from John the Baptist. With his testimony and witness about Jesus passing by, look, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. That's just wrong. Secondly, all are going to him. This is obviously exaggeration, right? Generalization. Many of the followings were now swift to another baptism across the Jordan. The two baptisms are going on, and John the Baptist, all of a sudden, that radical following that he used to have is shifted to Jesus. Humanly speaking, if you and I were John the Baptist's disciples, this would be troublesome, crisis. We need to have a crisis meeting. It's easy to say, oh, John's John, John the Baptist, he just, you know, we should be like him also too. But when you think about, just imagine your you started your own startup business. And one of your core people got recruited just a little more money and benefits and went to your competitors. This is business ethics. What's going on? When I was working for uh, import and export business, that exactly happened. That troubled me. I was not owner. I was one of the people, but one of our key salesmen got recruited, like doubled, he, he, he was offered double the money, but the, he sourced and everything that he knew about what we were doing, he took it over there. This was very troublesome. But unlike the, the, the unethical side of it, if your competitor business is just taking a big rise, and you're struggling, you're feeling the impact. How would you feel? You probably have a, have a hard time to go to sleep. If you run into the other competitor's CEO or president or, or what sort of boss, can you see him with loving, kind eyes, patient eyes? When we're starting uh, Crossway Church, close to 12 years ago, we're meeting in my uh, living room, and the information was about information meeting was about some of about 20 some people, uh, and we challenged you need to make it make a decision, and, and we call it all in retreat. In few months. You have to put all in. And it became 15. <laughs> the 15 people and, and, a, and a bunch of kids. And I still remember, oh, we're not, we didn't officially launch the church yet. And there's so many people. I had 500 people praying for me after I resigned from the large church, previous church. And many of them Pastor Paul, if you start a church, we're right there. And we started church, they're not here. <laughs> we still have a 15, 20 people in front of me. For two, three, four years, we're barely doing 30, 40 people in Sunday or the service. And sometimes the worship team stands up, about four or five people, and they go, uh, more people are standing up than sitting down in the beginning of the service. And I saw those people, my friends, who promised me they would support and follow that I'm such a great pastor for them. And I've seen that all these churches around us, they are mega churches. They are so well-groomed, and their, their children's ministry have this Wills and bells and whistles and big playground, visitor parking, 
First time parking, right in front of them. Service is only 75 minutes sharp. <laughs> and no one asks for any kind of volunteer until you get settled down in some kind of small group. I'm trying to bring it to reality. I kid you not, when I look, run into those friends, my heart was not full of hatred, and to, you know, I'll be honest, honestly. But it wasn't such a affection and love for them either. I get, you know, very, uh, very quiet um, cynicism, Blake. <laughs> I hate lakes. <laughs> Go ahead, have fun with the you know, church. <laughs> but we've seen in John chapter 1, John's comp confession about his identity. He, I'm not the Christ, and he keeps on, keep on mentioning. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. But this chapter is different. In a way, emotionally different. We're not looking at this self-disciplined, strong man. He is still. But we see this joy. Kind of radical, supernatural joy. What is going on? And he says, a, a friend of bridegroom, when he hears a voice of bri bridegroom, rejoices. And then now, my joy is complete. I have a fullness of joy. I cannot be happier than what I am right now. And the big question is, how? How was John the Baptist declares his life model not with painful obligation, but with joyful humility? This is something that we need to be challenged by, and this is something that we need to emulate. The caution is, as I mentioned, not to read into what it says. Some of these are what I used to read into when I was in full-time ministry uh, decades ago. At least that awareness and shift as I started this church plan, I still have a constant temptation, but I am aware of my view. But oftentimes, we read it this way. He must increase and I must decrease. No, I must increase. Prosperity gospel. You believe in Jesus and claim it and you will be prosper. Your kids will not be sick and your business will be blooming and you will have a thriving ministry. Your church will grow like crazy. Uh, no. O oftentimes we get a little humbler and say, maybe it says, he must increase so I can increase with him? Because his blessing on me is not as blatant as prosperity gospel attitude, but kind of wishing for. Okay, then we take another step of like, try to be humble and read it into this way. He must increase but I may decrease. Occasionally, I need to be ready for that. I may. I may be sometimes increased, but I may decrease. I'm ready for that. No. The statement has to be read clearly and carefully and correctly and to emulate John's joyful humility. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
It's not I'm open. It's not I am willing to take. It is a must. I must decrease. And then my confession is this. It's so easy, even for pastors and missionaries, to have this mindset of life devotion unto God. I gave it all to you, Lord. And therefore, I want to serve you. I'm willing to take some sufferings as well. But will you bless me? Will you have a favor on my ministry? Will you let people praise you because of me? So in other words, 95% for you, Lord. Maybe I, can I have 5%? That also implies, if I give you 100%, Lord, and there's nothing in me, and I'm not sure I will enjoy that. This is a very skewed view. Noble, and yet very skewed. Why? 100% given to God. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely righteous, and absolutely good. He cares for his own like, like the apple of his eye. Do I trust that? Can I, can I reserve 2-3% at least? 5%? Can I get some recognition? No. The paradoxical, radical surrender is when we are given to the Lord, when we give our life, our family, our children, our own career to God, we will experience radical paradoxical joy. That doesn't mean we'll face sufferings all the time. But uh, what I mean and what the text is saying is we will experience radical joy all through our life, no matter what happens. The saddest thing about our spirituality in this day and age, especially Western culture, the pragmatism took over our central thinking on who I am, what I am doing, how effective I am became so important. We miss that radical joy. We will miss as Crossway family if we don't live out live this out fully in the coming journey we're going to barely manage. So sisters and brothers leaders of this church the members of the Crossway family listen carefully. There is a secret open secret key reasons for John the Baptist's joyful humility. And at God's provision, uh, away weekend was wonderfully timely and it ended in that the, the Monday after away weekend, Bo and I were able to go a three-day personal retreat in Oceanside. Three days of solitude during the day and during the mealtime we gathered together and share. Solitude and community, solitude and community. I try not to do too many books other than the Bible and try to listen and posture uh, receiving. I took one book. I think I've read it before even a while ago. Andrew Marie's 
a simple book called Humility. I, I was blown away. I would recommend, heartily recommend that book. I underlined so many lines. Um, and I hear these echoes from that book concerning today's text. And I will quote him at the end of uh, this sermon. And the way that we could be prepared more than anything as we are staying away, humility. Not a noble intention to be humble externally, but true, joyful humility. The spirit of John the Baptist is what we need. The question is how was he able to get it? What were the key reasons for John the Baptist's joyful humility? There are at least three in this text, in my meditation. Um, as we go into the three key reasons, the backdrop of the old context in this, uh, J.C. Ryle uh, summarizes pretty well He's a 19th century uh, bishop in Anglican Church in England. He writes, The Lord Jesus himself declared that among those who are born of wo woman, there has not risen a greater man, I'm sorry, greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11:11. The Lord Jesus himself declared that he was a burning and shining light, John 5, 35. Yet here in this passage, we see this eminent saint, lowly, self-abased, and full of humility. He puts away from himself the honor which the Jews from Jerusalem were ready to pay him. He declines all flattering titles he speaks of himself as nothing more than voice of one crying in the wilderness, Matthew 3.3, 3, and as one who baptized with the water, Matthew 3.11 and 12. He pro proclaims loudly that there is one standing among the Jews far greater than himself, one whose shoe lesseth he is not worthy to unloose. Mark 1.7. He claims honor not for himself, but for Christ. Here's first key reason of John the Baptist's joyful humility. It is a clear sense of calling. John had a resolute purpose and vision, crystal clear vision of what God has called him to do with his life. Let's read it contextually again. Um, bear with me. Verse 22, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were camped coming and being baptized, for John had not been yet put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples a Jew with, and a Jew over purification. We don't know what this purification debate was all about. Maybe the best case, guess is that people are coming to be cleansed from their sin by being baptized, immersed in the, in the water. And the same people are going back to going to John, uh, Jesus this time, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing them. So is there something wrong with your purification? Probably some um, cynical Jew was challenging and, and discussing about that. That's my guess. Uh, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Clear sense of calling. The word vocation is rarely used these days. And I think typically we tend to use job or career. So the vocation in Latin root has a calling. And not necessarily calling for full-time ministry to be a pastor or missionary at all. Calling for your life. This is your vocation. My vocation so my calling and purpose in life is this. Um, common mistake the Christians can make, I have made so far in many cases, is that the vocation is equal career. So what type of job I have is my calling? No. You could have a vocation, and because of the vocation, you could change several jobs going back and forth. Sometimes the job that you are pay, getting paid for might not be your true vocation. That's a means to earn a living. Where do you start? Oh, I'm not a pastor, Paul. I'm not, I'm not going into the ministry, so I don't need that kind of calling. No, that yes, there is a special calling to be used by God for full-time ministry, we better make sure that those people going into that is a clear sense of calling for full-time ministry. But this calling that I'm talking about, it's a clear sense of calling is for every Christian, every Christ follower. Where do I begin, you ask? Good question. Begin with calling for all mankind. The chief end of man, chief end of man and woman is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a calling, general calling. Under that big general calling, God has given us special gifts and special circumstances and special needs that we are guided by spirit to follow that calling, to fulfill that calling. And brothers and sisters, do not live for your job, your career. Isn't it true that so many CEOs who get fired had no meaning of life? Many of them think about extreme resolution, including suicide, including leaving the family. There's no meaning in life anymore. But if you have sense of calling, a true vocation in life, you might be doing part-time here and part-time there because your primary duty as of now is a stay-at-home mom. Or you might be struggling to find your career purpose, is very struggling to find this job, and God is promoted and got laid off again. God move to another site, and then you are improving, and then the company closed down. Things might happen, but if you have a sense of calling, you'll be clear. The sense of calling, let me just say this, will purify our motive as well. And if I, if I were asked, if you were asking me, Paul, you, were, you had a bad motives over there previously. And then when you came to Crossway, your motive is perfect, right? No. My motive and your motive is never 100% clear. That's why we need to continually fight the battle of spiritual fight and die to self. 
But the being aware of that fight, and back then, I rationalized. There were rocks that I didn't lift it up. When I lift up every rock and I saw hidden motives, mixed motives, when I didn't get recognized, when, when I, oh, let, let me say this, when I got recognized nationally, my handbook was sold a certain number of, you know, demanded way, my ego was boosted. I felt important. I felt very, very successful in a way. And somehow rationalizing that because God is using me, I could enjoy this kind of thing as well. No. Compared to the back, back end, and Crossway has been utterly humble way. I think I'm known for my cleaning after church more than anything. But I'm grateful. He corrected me. Every step, wrong step that I take, every mixed motive, I'm confronted by the Spirit and by my brothers around me. Key reason number two, a clear understanding of his relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> John embraced that he was a friend of the bridegroom, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Let's pay attention to that again. Okay? Allow me to be redundant. The one who has the bride is a friend of bride. No, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete because he hears the voice of his bridegroom. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you see this? The joy comes from knowing his relationship with Jesus. It would be funny when you think about when you, you know you're one of the groomsmen or best men, even best men, and you go to the wedding, and then all the attention is on the bride and groom, and you go, "Hey, I'm here too. Pay attention to me. I'm best man here. I'm maid of honor. Come on." It would be awkward. You will be weird. <laughs> we all know our relationship. Today is the day that all attention and focus and highlight and limelight would be on bride and bridegroom. When we are clear with that, and even though Crossway Church might dwindle a little bit. I'm bracing myself. I'm being honest with you. you know, as we're doing mobile church every Sunday set up and break down, it will be hard. And then coming to church and you feel like there's an obligation to help. Some people will drop out. There's so many convenient churches around us. They'll go. And then fewer, fewer number will be faithful in attending. But if Jesus is exalted, if the life transformation is really happening for us, within us, there will be so much joy. We need to see that. And we might financially struggle, but we still have this radical joy going in that. And this is my promise. 
you held me accountable going forward. Not the attendance number of people, but the life changes and people who are just getting enthusiastic for their life transformation. People are impacted by the gospel in our church's ministry. And Jesus is being lifted up. And once again, would you think about your own life? It's not just a, uh, for full-time ministry people, but for even for us, the Christian life itself is not about us. It is about Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, who is the King of the kings. Third and last reason, key reason is uh, John the Baptist had a clear knowledge of who Jesus was. John knew that Jesus was the Son of God who is above all because he came from above. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is above the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And John in his thought in, in the parenthesis remark is that's me. The person who speaks in earthly way. But Jesus, he's above all because he's from above. There's a play of word there, right? It's not in the same class anymore. He's not my rival. He's my master and Lord. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. For he whom God has sent, utters the words of God, and uh, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has life, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John's clear knowledge is origin of Jesus. He's not earth, from earth. He's from, he's not from Nazareth or Bethlehem. His ultimate origin is from the heaven, the origin. And his identity is the triune God. The, once again, this deep theology of tri, trinity of God. Trinity of God shows up here. The ultimate reason why he's come is because his love for the Son. The Son comes with love to save the damning world. And to all to those who believe in him and obey him, he has a power to forgive them. Did you notice that the very last sentence The word believes in and the obey is changed in a parallel way. Why? Because the saving faith, true belief, will produce obedience. So if John clearly knew that he's not my rival, he's not another business competitor over there, ministry competitor and rival, but actually, he's the one that I'm working for. And then, obviously, there's your radical joy. In a consumer-oriented church, we could obviously see our neighboring churches and competitor churches. That's absolutely wrong, because we have actually have happened to have a one Lord 
for whom we do everything. And when other churches are doing, well, even if, in spite of the fact that there's murky things going on, unless the, the doctrine and teaching is not skewed from the scripture, we ought to be happy for them. Without being cynical and doubtful. So three reasons for this radical joyful humility. Number one is a clear sense of calling. Do you have a clear sense of calling in your life? Number two, clear relationship. Knowledge about your relationship with Christ. And in that way, when Christ is being exalted, there's joy. I think Apostle Paul in prison some of them were jealous and they're, okay, this is our chance. He's in prison. He can't do anything. Let's share the gospel in a wrongful way. Wrong motive. Uh, Paul says, I rejoice. Some with bad motive and some with right motive. But Christ is increased. Praise the Lord. Because of his relationship, it is possible we could do that too. And thirdly, clear knowledge of who Jesus is. We need to continually cultivate fuller knowledge of Jesus. And the more we are, our vision of who Jesus is clear, and even in our journey, we'll have Joyful humility. Oh, brothers and sisters, those three, three days of sol uh, solitude and silence in my uh, retreat, personal retreat, God confronted my, my pride. Very subtle pride. So I'm committed. I'm renewing my commitment to humbly serve you and this church and joyfully choose humility before God. And these are the words that I read in that Oceanside Monastery Prince of Peace. Andrew Murray writes, Men sometimes speak as if, if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and bold and men-like. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is a royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this is godlike to humble oneself, to become the servant of all. The truth is this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Under the banner of the truth, give yourself up to the meek and humble spirit of the holy Jesus. Humility must sow the seed, or there can be no reaping in heaven. Look not at pride only as an unbecoming temper, nor at, the hum at humility <coughs> only as a decent virtue. For the one is death and the other is life. The one, who is, the one is hell and the other is heaven. So much as you, have give, as you have a pride within you, you have of the fallen angel alive in you. So much as you have of true humility, so much you have of the Lamb of God within you. You know that phrase, look not at, at pride as an unbecoming temper, nor at the humility only as a decent virtue. I think that's the cultural tone in Christian churches, these days, including me. 
when you share your, you know, share your struggle and sin, oftentimes a lot of pastors and leaders, the confession is, oh, my, my struggle is always pride. It's almost like, you know, when you're going in a work interview, and they say, what's your weakness? Oh, I tend to work too much. I work only, you know? Same tone. I'm a perfectionist. And when you think about humility, oh, I'd love to have humility. It's like a little extra decoration that you could have. Andrew Murray is so right. Until we have true humility, we will not taste joyful, fullness of joy in Christ. May Christ increase. He must increase. But I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this challenge and convicting uh, reminder. And thank you for the example of some mere human being who had fallen nature in him, John the Baptist, and his life model that he must increase, but I must decrease. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us that we may be able to experience this joyful humility like John the Baptist. Teach us to die to ourselves daily. Teach us to be mindful that our pride, that sense of self-reliance and sufficiency is not something that we, could to- we need to tolerate, but we need to root out that. And Lord, Lord let, let us help us to look at humility as not a just nice uh, virtue that we could have, character we could add to our our strength, but a central character to f- in following you. Make us humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.